If you're ready to take your destiny into your own hands, you've come to the right place. This is Ordeshi, the bulletproof entrepreneur, featuring interviews with the most exciting and amazing entrepreneurs across Africa. Here's your host, Chi Odogu. All right, guys, welcome to the show today. So, how does a young American upstart show up in a foreign country with only $400 and no connections and end up building an empire valued at over $200 million before his um, retirement, if you will? Well, in this episode, I'm talking to Paul Oberschneider. He left the U.S. in the early 90s to go to Estonia for a brief vacation before attending grad school. And then he ended up staying for about 18 to 20 years. He launched several businesses, primarily starting off helping people write business plans so that they could get their uh, bank loans from the local bank in Estonia. From that, his business grew. He, he went into real estate, eventually owned a mortgage bank, started investing in hospitality and hotels, and just had a whole lot of adventures along the way. So... He's on the show today to tell us a little bit about himself and his background and his, his, uh, since his retirement from actively working in Eastern Europe, he's relocated to the UK, primarily Oxford, where he's been investing in boutique hotels, fast food chains, and other health food businesses, but also looking towards Africa as the next point for his, um, what I call it, his new adventure. He's written a book called why sell tacos in Africa, and this conversation is just a brief primer of the story he tells in his new book, Why Sell Tacos in Africa. After we talk, if you want to get his book, you can go over to Kindle and Smashwords and get it. So, with that said, Paul, welcome to the show. Thank, thanks for inviting me. Um, what, what an honor and what a pleasure. So, yeah, so how does all that happen? Well, you know, I like to I like to sort of my favorite movie is uh, is Forrest Gump because uh, you know here's the guy that just showed up and things happened and and I feel that very much uh, a part of a lot of what I did sort of mirrored what happened in that particular comedy that movie and um, you know how does how does that happen well first of all I had really no choice I mean I went through a very dark period. Back in the 80s, I was a former futures and equities trader on the New York Stock Exchange. And it was pretty wild times, and it almost cost me my life through, um, through addictions and things, which I overcame some 29 years ago now. And um, so I was, I was getting myself back on my feet and, and uh, was going, had gone back to school, finished my degree, which was something that I hadn't done okay. Uh, while I was trading, and um, had $400 to my name and decided I would go off to Central and Eastern Europe to visit where my father had originally been born and come from, sort of to find and retrace my roots and, of course, to sort of find myself at that point in my life. And what what was meant to be a two-week holiday turned out to be a 20-year adventure, and, of course, I never went back to that grad school, and I never and I never came home. Um, so it was all a bit serendipitous because landing in Central and Eastern Europe, especially in Tallinn in 1991, I was going into a, a, a wide horizon, a, an emerging market. Mm-hmm. Um, and my book, Why Sell Tacos in Africa, is not about tacos and it's not about really Africa. It's, it's a metaphor for 
blue sky or blue ocean markets, uncontested markets where one can go and be creative without the, the pressure of extreme competition. So that's how it all started. Just to give people some perspective, um, at the height of your business in Estonia, what were the total annual revenues you were doing? Just for people to understand that somebody came from $400 to, to what? Well, it's, you know, I had, I had a number of different businesses. So primarily towards the end, at my largest stage, I was, I was a retail property developer. Yeah. So, you know, as a developer, you don't make money until you really trade out of things and flip things. So my, my, my revenues were very um, chunky and sporadic. Okay. Um, so, you know, I might, I might buy a, a, a site for a million euros back then and then go through planning and go through um, infrastructure development. And then a year or two later, I'd sell it for six million or seven million, um, in one case, 12. And um, so the, the revenue streams were, were, were chunky. Now, on the real estate agency side, we, we had started a real estate agency with one broker, and we grew that to 350 brokers across six countries. Um, that business was turning over pretty close to a million and a half, two million a month oh. um, in, in revenue um, as a service business. Um, a lot, you know, and then there was the mortgage company, but but primarily the big returns were made in my in my development, development. in the yeah in the shopping center developments. Okay. And um, you know we were we were building those centers for cap rates of seventeen eighteen percent, and when we eventually started selling things years down the road. We were selling those assets for cap rates of five percent, so a huge, massive, huge, massive uplift in 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 yield and in price. And um, as the yields were being forced down by this global liquidity that was reaching everywhere, Uh and you know we were we were very small, shallow markets, so that liquidity pushed prices up really quickly where I was. And, um, you know, by the time the private equity guys and the institutional money started coming in in sort of 2004, 5, 6, and 7, you know, um, we were starting to sell. Yeah. You know, so that's, that's if, that, if that gives you an idea. Yeah, that gives me a good idea. So you mentioned that the bulk of the money you made was basically from trading assets, especially at the end as a developer. Now, what were the, you also mentioned earlier that you were a trader on Wall Street. Like, what were some of the main things you learned trading? Like, who were your mentors while you were trading, and what were the main qualities you wanted to model throughout your career from there? Well, in hindsight, um, I'd have to say my mentors were Steve Fawcett, who um, I worked for, and uh, he's no longer around. He died in a, an airplane crash in, in uh, the Arizona desert flying a plane. But he was Richard Brand- one of Richard Branson's friends. They did balloon trips around the world together and did all kinds of things. But 
he was um, he was one of the first guys that I worked for. And what I liked about Steve was, you know, he was calm all the time. I mean, he, uh-huh. he took massive risk. He took massive risk. He used leverage um, extremely well, but he was always hedged, and um, he would never put himself in a position where he was completely exposed. And um, the other group was uh, Michael Bregman and Company in New York City. And equally, these were guys that were really, really calm and measured in everything they did. Whereas me, as a young trader, you know, we were we were all full of adrenaline and and you know. Um, you know, being a floor trader, you're, 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 you know, you're, you're, you're trying to shout and scream and push your way into earning eighths and quarters of a point. Whereas these guys were long-term players. They were long-term traders. They took a view and, um, and then they stuck with that view. Hmm. So do you think that you were able to focus? So for example, if we go from trading to showing up in Estonia, you said you just went on vacation and then um, tell us the story of how you met that guy that started this whole thing. Well, yeah, okay. Well, let me go back to the first question um, and just touch on that. I think, I think what Wall Street did for me was, you know, um, even though it wasn't my money and I was trading other people's capital, um, it, it, I was able to, as an individual, I was not really afraid of risk and, you know, and being on the floor trading every day, you're surrounded by risk. Um, You're taking risk all the time. And, um, you know, getting on an airplane with $400 going to a completely strange place requires, I think, a a crazy individual or a certain mindset. Um, And um, not many people will do that. So, so risk has always been a big part of taking risk has always been a big part of my, my life. Um, you know, I, I, I'm not a crazy risk taker, but you know, I I think I'm far more measured today than I was before, but, but I'm not afraid of risk. So, um, anyway, so yeah, I, I, I showed up and, uh, I didn't know anybody and I was there on a, on what was a holiday and, you know, the the town hall squares back then was where everybody sort of hung out, all the young people. And I met a guy, um, um, a, you know, a young Russian guy named Sergey, and he told me about a business he was starting, and he needed a business plan. So he, he just assumed, since I'd been in New York and been on Wall Street, that I could write one of these things. And, of course, I didn't speak the language, and I didn't have a computer, and... So I did it in English on his computer. Um, and you guys were communicating in English, or you understood Russian? Yeah, no, he spoke, okay. He spoke. He spoke broken English. Okay. <laughs> as, as most of the people did, and so I wrote this business plan. And he he took this thing to. He was opening up a retail store, and he took this business plan to to the bank, and he got he got the loan, um, which which I think surprised both him and me. Um, and he asked me, he said, "Well." how much do I owe you? Because we had never really talked about that. And I said, well, I don't know, $500. And surprisingly, he pulls out this wad of dollars and shows out $500, and thank you very much. And so now I have $900. And 
Two, three days later, his friend shows up and says, well, I understand you wrote this business plan for Sergey. Would you mind doing this thing for me? And I said, sure, why not? And, you know, we went through the same process. He goes to the bank and surprise, surprise, he gets the loan and he comes back and he says, well, how much do I owe you? And now, you know, now I'm not slow, so yeah. I'm not stupid. <laughs> I, I say, okay, you know, $1,000, you know, thinking that he might resist. And no, he pulls out $1,000 and he gives it to me. Hmm. Well, this goes on all summer long. And by the end of summer, so I started sort of in April. By the end of summer, I had made a pile of money just writing plans for people like this. Um, and I ended up writing business plans for the Ministry of the Economy, for some German hotel chains, um, for, for a lot of different businesses. I mean, at one point, we were charging $50,000 for a hotel business plan and for, you know, a, an industrial company. So, um, you know... That was the that was the blue sky opportunity because nobody was really doing that. Now, and up until that point, excuse me, up until that point, you hadn't written a business plan ever, and the internet wasn't available like it is now for you to research an old business. You just had an idea that you could do it, correct? Uh, or well, you'd seen a yeah. couple before while you were working. I, I had written a business plan or two before that. Okay. Uh, you know, so I, I was slightly familiar with how yeah. to do this, um, and I and I could, you know, and I was pretty good with Excel uh -huh. and spread and spreadsheets, so I could do that too. Yeah. Um, but no, there was no internet. There was no research. It yeah. was the business plans, as I think they always should be, were 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 simple. They were short. They were common sense. Okay. You know, my philosophy okay. is, is if you don't understand the offer within the first paragraph, uh, then okay. forget it. Okay. You, know, it, you know, if it takes you 10 pages to explain something, then probably it's too complicated for me. Okay, so it wasn't uh, one of these new 100-page business plans that project into 20, 30 years down the road. Yeah. I mean, oh, God. Yeah. No, and, and, and I don't write those today either, yeah. you know, because, you know, I don't, I don't think any of us – Especially in this day and age, I don't think any of us can see past 12, 24, 36 months. Yeah. Um, so, you know, we may have ideas about what we want to do. We may have goals, but things change so fast these days that, you know, it's really hard to make those kind of projections. And I think those kind of projections are, in my opinion, worthless. Yeah, you know? makes sense. Makes sense. So the business blows up. You're writing hotel business plans for $50,000 a pop. And then what happens? The guys from the bank show up at your doorstep? Yeah, so my friend, my friend from the, who's a, who's a friend of mine now, and I just spoke to him this morning, actually. Um, he, um, he came and found me and said, are you the guy writing these plans for, for my, for my bank? And I thought I was in big trouble, actually. And, um, and I sheepishly said, well, yeah, that's me. And he said, well, why don't you come and, and help me? Um, we're building a credit department and we need your help. So I didn't know anything about banking other than you shouldn't really bounce checks. <laughs> and, uh, you, you know, and, and we started this credit department at one of the local banks, which became one of the big banks, um, eventually was sold to a Swedish group. And, um, you know, we started this credit department basically on the back of um, a book that was given to me by 
a young fellow that was working for PricewaterhouseCoopers. He handed me the uh, PricewaterhouseCoopers credit handbook, and he said, well, you need to read this. So we kind of built the bank on, or built the credit department on the back of that book. And you had also, I mean, because I read the book, I know, but this is a guy you met basically in the bar, right? It wasn't like, oh, you knew a guy that would give you a book to do this thing. It was just... No, no, no. Just by chance. By another chance. one of those, it was another one of those Forrest Gump moments, you know? Wow. <laughs> Wow. So I, I think for me, one thing I've pulled so far from your story is basically um, as an individual, as an entrepreneur, you always have to be willing to put yourself out there. Even there are a lot of people that feel when they're starting a business, they need to be heads down in their closet, you know, coding, writing, doing whatever they need to do. But at the same time, when you were doing that, you were also going out and meeting people and just what you needed to continue the second step of your journey appeared at the right time that you needed it. Well, I think that's right. You know, my wife likes to remind me, you never fly to the moon alone. And, um, you know, I think people are a big part of any any business. And uh, you need to be out there meeting people and, you know, networking um, because that's where you learn. I mean, if you're sitting at your desk all alone writing code, I don't think that I don't think you're going to get the exposure that you need now. Mm. You know, I mean, business has changed so much in 20 years that, you know, there are young guys that are right, right code. And suddenly they become, you know, the next internet um, success. But the businesses that I was involved in really required knowing the landscape of people. And, you know, I needed people to help me do things. So, you know, people, mm. people are a big part of my story. Yeah. So what happens next? These guys end up, what, you you and them had a falling out and then? Well, I did what I was supposed to do and then they fired me. Wow. <laughs> so, for, so, doing, for doing your job. For doing my job. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, you know, um, we were working 24-7. We did a really good job and then they really didn't need me anymore. And I think they thought I was going to kind of go home. But... Um, you know, I, uh, it, 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 you know, we're, we're sort of two, three years into the story now mm -hmm. and, you know, I couldn't go back to business school. That was finished. And most of my friends I hadn't really communicated with, they wouldn't have believed any of this anyway. Mm -hmm. And there was really not much for me to go back to. So, you know, I decided to stay where I was and, and, and that really was, um, based on an epiphany um, that I, you know, I'm not a religious person, but I, but I am a very spiritual person, I think. And, um, I had this epiphany. I was, I went for a run on, um, on a very cold night on, uh, on the Baltic sea thinking about what I was going to do. And I was very depressed and I had forgotten about all the great things that, that had happened to me so far. And I was spiraling downwards in this thought process of, oh, no, you know, now what am I going to do? Mm. Um, not, not remembering that I had this pile of cash in the bank. Um, and um, I stopped, and, and I watched a guy throwing a stick in the water to this black mangy dog. Now, mind you, it's 10 o'clock at night. It's freezing cold. It's probably 20 below zero. The, the, you know, this dog is jumping into the, the Baltic Sea which is freezing and full of ice and debris. And 
every time the dog brings the stick back and the guy throws it again uh-huh. and the dog goes uh-huh. in. And I'm watching this for like 10, 15 minutes. And I had this sort of spiritual epiphany that said, you know, the dog has no idea that there's danger out there. He just believes that things are going to be okay. And he's trusting. He's trusting this guy, that's his, his master, if you will, who's throwing the stick. And I said, I thought to myself, I said, I need the same kind of faith as that dog has. Mm. You know, I need to have faith that I am where I am right now and that everything is going to be okay. And from that moment on, things just changed dramatically because I was able to let go of all my fears, let go of all my preconceived ideas and just show up every day knowing that, you know what, tomorrow's going to be even better than today. Okay. And so up until that time, so that to me that seemed like the, the moment at which you just decided you'd go and chart a course for yourself, make your own path, you wouldn't try and join a company or anything. You just felt like, you know, that was the right time for you to just go it alone, start building your business and... And taking opportunities as they come to you, correct? That's right. Yeah. That was the. So, how did you fall into real estate? Well, you have to remember that that I'm in a country that I don't even speak the language in. Uh-huh. Um, so, you know, had I spoken the language, I probably would have gone into a lot of different other things. Um, but I. You know, real estate was something, bricks and mortars. Um, I knew it was cheap. I knew people needed places to live. Um, and um, and there was, I could see great opportunity there. And it was something that I could, it was simple. Um, I needed something simple. Um, so I decided to do real estate. And I started by just renovating one apartment at a time. And, um, and renting them out to foreign embassy personnel. Um, because the one advantage I had was that locals that would renovate things, they really didn't know what Westerners wanted. And, um, and I did. And uh, so I built sort of the kinds of places that I could easily rent to the embassies. And so after about a, a, a year of doing this, um, you know, I had a portfolio of apartments now that I had renovated and I was, I was renting out. And I was hiring all these real estate brokers from the different companies around, and they were all looking for stuff for me to buy. And, um, of course, you know, my friends at the bank were lending me the money, so that was good. And um, um, one by one, I started asking these guys, I said, well, why don't, why don't you just quit your job to come and we'll do this together. We'll, 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 work, we'll work as a team. And so we started with kind of one person and it grew to two and three and we were borrowing a friend of mine's office. And after about a month and a half, we had 30 people. Um, and my friend kicked us out of his office because we were very disruptive. <laughs> we, had to, we had to go get our own office. And, um, you know, that was the beginning of my, my company, Overhouse. Um, you know, and uh, we were, we, we, you know, we were doing, you know, it just all came together by chance. 
Yeah. You mentioned um, just a little bit earlier that um, half of the things you'd gone into, you wouldn't have gone into if you had known better. Like take, for example, real estate, because you didn't speak the language. Um, obviously, you had to depend on translators and stuff like that. And I'm also guessing that even dealing with like the government contracts and the rules and red tape at that time was difficult. So how were you able to navigate all that? Because, I mean, if locals were doing it, I mean, it should have been daunting to you when you were starting out. Well, it was. Okay. Um, but fortunately, a lot of the locals spoke English. Okay. Um, That's good. Badly, but they spoke English. Okay. And, um, you know, that improved over 20 years. But, but you know, it, it required me to, to intuitively find people that I trust and I was very, I was very lucky, I think, in my selection of people, um, and I surrounded myself with a group of, of people that really were looking for an opportunity to change their own lives. Um, they saw me as the catalyst to do this, and they joined up with me. But you know, not speaking the language gave me a real <clears throat> advantage in one sense, and okay. that was. Um, well, you know, most entrepreneurs, they feel that they have to do everything themselves. Yeah. And, you know, so they, they, get, they get focused on doing a lot of management things. Um, and, you know, I couldn't do that. I couldn't physically do that because I couldn't communicate in a way to do that. Okay. So I had, to, okay. I had to really learn to delegate and, and trust people to do things for me, uh, which allowed me to think more strategically and leave the management issues to other people. And I think that alone probably accelerated the growth in what we did by at least five, six years. Oh, wow. So basically you found people you could trust who knew what they were doing. You just empowered them to do it and you gave like oversight and um, direction. A division, as it were. That's right. Okay, great. In the book, you mentioned that usually as an entrepreneur, the way you found business to go into businesses to go into was because you ran into certain problems and then you tried to solve those problems and that led you to another business. More or less. Yes, that's correct. Okay. I mean, we, you know, in our agency business, we were, we were renting and we were selling homes and a lot of people couldn't demonstrate the income that they needed to demonstrate to the banks. So we thought we would get a line of credit from the banks and start our own mortgage company. Uh Um, And so we became loan originators, selling those package loans back to the bank and, and, and funding. So, you know, that business developed out of, out of a need really. Um, The other one was the property management business, which we basically did for ourselves, and then we sold that service on to other developers as well. So, you know, there were there were um, businesses that all these businesses grew out of uh, of the original nucleus business, Overhouse, okay. including including the development business. I mean, it was only because we had the information and the people on the ground finding stuff um, that I was able to, you know, compete in the privatizations find the land that I needed to find. Hmm. So, you know, one thing, one thing led to another. Okay. 
So what were some of the most difficult moments while you were building your business in Central and Eastern Europe, and how did you overcome them? Well, I guess the two most difficult moments have to do with um, with uh, funding with with shareholders. Okay. Um, the first the first real difficult moment was the Russian currency crisis in 1998, or the Asian flu, mm-hmm. as some call it. Um, we were we were um, halfway through a, a, a big development, and um, the crisis hit, and we needed more equity. Um, the bank was, of course, willing to lend, but without the equity, they, they kind of put the brakes on. So we had a 10 million euro um, hole in our, in, our, in our cash flow. And um, so I went back to my shareholders, my New York shareholders, and they basically said no. Hmm. Uh, and um, so that was, that was um, a very difficult time because that could have put us all out of business. And, you know, I ended up, I ended up sort of pleading with the local banks uh, by pledging everything I had in order for them to fund the remainder. And I also went to my construction companies and, uh, you know, they, they were in the same predicament I was because if I, you know, didn't, didn't complete, then they would have been out of bit, pocket. Yeah. But, you know, but, but the construction companies were very liquid. And uh, so they all basically pitched in and got me out of this problem. And um, so this is why, again, networking is so important and developing relationships because those relationships actually bailed me out of a, out of a, out of a difficult situation. Uh-huh. And, and, and the second problem was related, and that was, um, um, you know, my, my original New York shareholders wanted to get out, and, and they were really willing to to sell at fireside prices. And uh, they were the majority shareholders in all my assets. Um, the, the, the upside of all that was um, I was able to buy them out for kind of 10 cents on the dollar. So what was, what was originally a problem became, became a fabulous opportunity for me because that was in 2004. And, you know, after I bought all those assets out at very, very low prices, the mar- the liquidity in the market just compounded and just, you know, it was mind-blowing because that's when all the institutional money was starting to come in. So my assets rose in value exponentially um, with me as this pretty much the single owner. Yeah. But in the book, you said something about if an entrepreneur is looking for money to finance their business, you advocate going the um, institutional route that's raising money from private equity and venture capitalists as opposed to raising money from family and friends. But usually um, when people start their businesses, they usually go friends and family route for angel financing before the business grows and then you get to institutional. How do you... How does one navigate that? Because it seems like a chicken and egg problem. One has one usually seems to come before the other, but now you're saying do it the other way. Well, I don't think you can get out of the chicken and egg problem ever unless you're really lucky. 
And I think probably in the beginning, most people have no choice but to 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 um, fund with family and friends. The problem with family and friends, of course, is you have to have dinner with them and you have to see them all the time. And if things go wrong, yeah. you know, cool. um, friendships get lost rather easily. Um, so as soon as you can, you need to replace those people with with more institutional type funders because you know an institution they they underwrite losses in their investments so you know for them it's not their money anyway um i mean they have a a fiduciary responsibility of course but they're not going to lose any sleep over it um and i would i would far prefer to have those kinds of people funding me um because it's not it's not really emotional um but in the beginning i you know I think you have to. Now, today there are other ways to do that. You have crowdfunding. crowdfunding yeah. And you have all kinds, you have all kinds of alternative platforms which didn't exist, you know, 20, 30 years ago. Um, so I think the the need for turning to family and friends is a lot less than it used to be. There's one thing that you briefly mentioned around this time that I just wanted to get like a bigger picture on. You said something about you had two Russian guys come into your office with guns and they yeah. they held you up at gunpoint saying you should give them your property, right? Yeah. So um first of all, what's the backstory there and then how did you get out of that situation? Well the backstory is that, you know when 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 and it might be similar there, I don't know, but, you know, back in the early 90s, if you went to Central and Eastern Europe, or especially in Russia, you were always told, if you were an investor, that you needed a roof. You needed to hire people to protect your interests. Mm. Now, because, mm. I, because I started out so small, um, nobody ever bothered to, to, to pay attention to me. So, you know, I never had any of these mafia guys sort of chase me down um, and asking me for, for payment, yeah. to, you know. Yeah. But, you know, the funny thing is, is that you realize very quickly that the people you're paying to protect you are actually the people that are the most dangerous people. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and so you never want to get caught up in that. Um, and I didn't. But at one point, you know, I got to a point where people did start to notice and this small group of guys came and they, they wanted to give me a hard time and they wanted, they wanted me to give them some things. Um, and I refused. Um, they came into the office, they put the gun down on the table. And, you know, it's one of the few times in my life that I got absolutely emotional. And, um, you know, I got up and I started screaming at these guys. I don't think they knew um, what to do. And they just kind of stared at me, and they were they were shocked that 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 you know I was confronting them like this. And the one guy picks up the gun, and I said, "What are you going to do with that gun? Are you going to shoot me with all these people around? Are you going to shoot me?" And I picked up a chair and I threw it at the wall, and I said, "Get the bloody hell out of my office!" <laughs> and 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 they they, they kind of looked at each other. They picked up their stuff and they ran. Um, and um, you know. I thought I thought I was history, um, you know. That night, I thought for sure I was, you know, somebody would come visit. But but I never saw them again, and nobody ever bothered me again. 
Wow. Um, now, wow. you know, the other thing, so I never, had I bought into that, um, I would have never gotten out of it. But the yeah. other thing, yeah. the, you know, the other thing is that as I was growing these businesses, you know, I hired law firms, I hired construction companies, I hired people that were doing things for me. And those are the people that actually protected me because, you know, they were earning fees. They were earning money from the developments and the things that I was doing. And it was in their best interest to make sure that I kept doing those things. Uh So um, whenever I had a problem, if I ever had a problem, you know, I would turn to, to, to them and I would tell them and um, somehow the problem would go away. So basically, your partners that you were doing business with just kind of looked out for you because you're the guy bringing all the cash in for them. Yeah, basically. Nice, nice. Um, there's another conversation you had. I think it was in a hotel about people from Finland, correct? Is it Swedes or Finland? So let's talk about that and let's talk about how you were basically able to exit your business at the height of the financial crisis in 2008? Well, it it has nothing to do with being smart. Let's just start there. Okay. Uh, It's one of those other, it's another Forrest Gump moment. So in in 1992, I'm sitting in a sauna with a Finnish businessman named Elvis, if you can believe that. And and he actually looked like Elvis. He, He had wild hair and he liked to wear wild clothes. And we were talking about the Finns, and, and he was telling me, because I was actually quite surprised that, you know, being 80 kilometers away from Finland at that time, there weren't more, there weren't more Finnish investors in the market. Hmm. And, and he, he said, well, he said, bear in mind that the Finns are very risk-averse, and they only come in at the very, very end when everything is perfect. And he said, you know, Paul, by then it's too late. And I never, I never, I never thought about that comment in 18 years. I just kind of locked that comment in the back of my mind. You know, I never really saw this guy Elvis again. Um, um, And then in 2006, while I was running around London trying to raise money for a property fund, and I had spent, I don't know, 100,000 euros on advisors, um, on getting a nomad to do a listing and all the rest of the stuff. I get a phone call from a Finnish private equity group saying, you know, we'd like to come and talk to you about maybe buying Oberhaus. And that conversation that I'd had in two came flying back at me. And um, on that hunch alone, now, you know, mind you, this is when the music was the loudest. Yeah. The, this was 2006. Every taxi driver in London was was speculating in property in Central and Eastern Europe. I mean, everybody was putting money into these small markets. And, and that comment that came back to me suddenly made sense. And I just felt intuitively that we were close to the top of the market. So on that comment alone, um, we started selling stuff off. And fortunately for us, you know, we sold the last... Business in well in 2008, one week before the crisis, and we were out, and you know we were everybody thought we were gurus, but you know not not many people realized that it, it had nothing to do with being smart. It had to do with a 
conversation that I'd had in, in a sauna with the Finnish businessman in 1992. Yeah, I'm sure it must look very like weird for you to be selling off when everybody's trying to buy. And they're just like, what, what's Paul up to? Why is he doing this? What did they say was going on with you? Why were you doing this? Were you able to convince your partners? <laughs> well, <coughs> yeah, for the most part. Basically, it was just me. Um, and um, so I didn't have a lot of convincing to do. But, um, no, people didn't believe what we were doing, and they, they had no idea. They, they were really curious as to why, why we were doing this. And, um, you know, there was no answer. So now um, let's look at it on the opposite side. Like many parts of, like now in Nigeria, we're in a recessionary environment, and a few other parts that are heavily dependent on oil in Africa are facing kind of a liquidity crisis and an economic crunch as well. How would you advise someone to take advantage of the opportunity within the crisis? Well, I mean, and, and you have to excuse my my sort of uneducated answer here, but, you know, um, in my opinion, Africa has always been looked at for its natural resources. Um, you know, the, the, the wealth of the African continent has been about oil. It's been about natural resources that could be exported. Um, my, my, my opinion, without really precisely knowing it, but my sort of armchair opinion, if you will, mm. is that the real resources there are the one billion people that you have. Um, it, yes, you have the natural resources, okay. But, you know, you've got a billion people on the continent that, that, that need things um, and that um, have, have to eat, they have to, they have to have certain things function in society, whether it's education or something as simple as electricity, lighting, or whatever. Mm. Um, and, and I think that you've got a, a very young demographic, um, eager entrepreneurial people. And I think that the entrepreneurial spirit in Africa will drive the continent um, by providing goods and services, not so much for other people, for the export, but for themselves. That It's a massive consumer market. Um, and I think the people on the ground there have a huge opportunity to do that. Hmm. So are you seeing parallels between... Um, okay, let's just generalize the way different African economies are right now uh, compared to the way Eastern Europe was when you showed up roughly 20-something-odd years ago. Well, the people I talked to in London, you know, for the most part, say things that I heard 25 years ago or 20, you know, some years ago, and that is, well, the African market's very opaque, it's very corrupt, um, it's controlled by a small group of people. You know, um, you can't you can't do business there. I mean, these were the same things that people were telling me in Central and Eastern Europe and Russia in 1992. Um, and you know, the perception. Some. I mean, obviously, some of that exists in you know in a real way, both then and and now. Um, but I think the, the, the media does a, um, a good job at painting very negative pictures. 
So I think the similarities from a from an opaque point of view are similar. From the corruption point of view, are similar. From difficulty point of view, is similar. The difference being that you know the countries that I worked in were 60 million people, all total, including Poland. The the country you know the continent of Africa is a billion people. Mm. So you know the the, the, the scale the, 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 the scale is so much larger, which for me makes the opportunity so much more interesting. Okay. So you exit, sell your companies off, and then you retire to the UK just to take a break, play polo, do what? Yeah, I mean, I did what everybody, you know, I probably did what every entrepreneur who's done well does. I, I spent too much money. I, I took my eye off the ball. Um, you know, I got very complacent. Um, I started believing, you know, the press, um, my own press. And, you know, I got, got to a place where I was actually, um, you know, back to where I'd felt years ago rather than empty, if you will. And, um, so I've just, I've decided now to re-explore, um, and to test if you will, my entrepreneurial capability, um, and get back in the game. Oh, okay. So, um, before we explore that further, someone once told me that, um, when you make it big, that friends, family, people around you all have a $10,000 problem that they expect you to solve. And that even if you solve that problem, another problem will always come. Did you experience that kind of thing with people around you, like close friends, family, looking to you uh, to bail them out from different situations that they got themselves into? Yeah, and I said no. Um, yeah, mostly with family, a few few family members. But, uh, you know, you, you, you can't solve other people's problems. I mean, you know, I have, I have, <laughs> I have a host of my own, yeah. right? What was the biggest expenditure you made when you had finally made it big and you purchased something and you felt like, wow, I've really like, I've arrived, you know, what was the biggest thing? And then, um, what was the most humbling thing at the same time for you? Well, the biggest things I bought were I bought a couple of big agricultural farms in South America, in Argentina, okay. that are really lifestyle assets and don't provide you with an income that you have to subsidize all the time. Um, the humbling thing for me today is to realize that um, and to realize that probably those assets today don't quite fit well in my portfolio because they're too expensive to keep. Mm. Um, so, you know, I think they're, the, they're, they're one in the same. Mm. That's great. So you're doing business in the UK. You're a mentor to a bunch of startup founders. You've invested in a couple boutique hotel chains. And then... You start writing this book, Why Sell Tacos in Africa. I mean, you've already explained that it's a metaphor and it's basically a, an operating manual for how to think about um, experiencing opportunities in the blue sky environment. But now you're, it seems like you're getting that entrepreneurial itch, that ADHD to try and like come in 
to Africa and check it out for yourself. So tell us a little bit about, you know, uh, what what you're expecting to to do in this new chapter of your life in terms of um, what you tend to look out for in an investment, what type of countries excite you, what type of businesses, what type of people you like working with, you know, stuff like that. Well, the, the, the book is not a business. Um, you know, I, you know, I, my, my wife gave me a present, uh, about writing a book and I read it on an airplane and I decided to write a book, um, and, um, about my experiences. And so I sent the book to an agent or, and a publisher and, and, and both of them came back and said, well, what is this? Is this a memoir? Is this a business book? because it seems like you're trying to do two things here, blah, blah, blah. So I took it back, and I pulled all the business stuff out, and I created a second book, which is Why Sell Tacos in Africa. Mm. And, mm. And, and that's about emerging markets and, and talks a little bit. It's a sort of a memoir-infused business book. Um, and, and I'm using that book um, to, A, promote myself, but also as a calling card, if you will, um, on the emerging market scene and to open up doors to, to come and visit and meet people and, and, and find opportunity. The original book um, is called Coming Clean, Confessions of an Entrepreneur. That, that is more of a memoir, and that will be out next year. Mm. Um, that, that is a business-infused memoir. Um, so there's, that, that's a more personal book. Um, and a more serious book than 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 tacos. Ta- the Why Sell Tacos in Africa is really a step by step book about what I did and how I did it. Um, but these are not businesses. These are these are. This is really just a platform for me to use to then have a look at opportunities. Um, you know, my hope is that you know my my, my hope is I'm going to be coming. There in the next few months, I'm coming in October, probably to Ghana and to Nigeria, to Lagos. Um, and then I'm going to go to Rwanda, Tanzania, Zambia, um, and meet some people that I've met on this journey, if you will. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, and go with an open mind and see what perhaps there is to do. I mean, in any emerging market, there are various stages of development. So... You know, funding is different at different points in time. Different businesses are important at different points in time. Um, you know, so I really need to sort of get a get a view of what 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 opportunities there are. And you know, what I'm what I'm very enthusiastic about are the the emails and the LinkedIn conversations that I've been having. The people that have contacted me directly. From all these countries, uh, mostly young yeah. people, mostly young people, um, mostly entrepreneurs looking to start or to grow their businesses, and you know, I'm I'm enthusiastic by their enthusiasm, if you will, uh, and by yeah. and by their desire to to scale up and grow their businesses. So I think, in from that point of view, I can be quite helpful. Okay. So as we start to round up, um, I just have some winding up questions for you. Uh, as a leader, what is the one thing you do over and over again that you recommend everyone else to do or emulate? Tell a good story. 
Why? You've got to be able to communicate um, your goals and your vision. And I think I think the difference between leadership and management is that you know managers do do managers are very task oriented. They they make sure things get done. Um, leaders provide the foundation or the vision for people to follow. And, you know, one doesn't necessarily do the other job well. And I think you have to recognize where you fall in that, that um, spectrum. Um, but I think any entrepreneur that wants to grow their business, they have to be, a, they have to have a vision and they have to be able to communicate that. So I, I always believe that you need to be a very good storyteller. Okay. okay. You need to be convincing. Okay. And you need to believe it. Okay. So uh, if you were to start all over with $200 as opposed to $400 initially, what do you think you'd do? There's this question by another pod, famous podcaster that said, you wake up in a brand new world, you only have $500 with you. Um, what are you going to do with that? I want to direct you with $200. What, do you, what are you going to do if you were in that kind of a situation? I don't know. I have to meet Sergey. <laughs> I, I have to meet Sergey's counterpart in, in, in Africa uh, um, and, just, and just see what happens. You know? Okay. You have to show up. You have to show up and let stuff happen. Okay. So what's one good business idea you'd love to give like a young entrepreneur listening to try and think about and explore, given everything you've, you've gone through as an entrepreneur yourself with many, many years of experiences? Well, you know, without being cliche-ish, you know, go the route less traveled. Find, find the thing in your sector or in a sector that where, there's, where it's not crowded. I mean, it's just like the highway. You don't want to be on a highway behind lots of traffic. Mm. Uh, everybody's traveling in the same direction, going, doing the same thing. You're never going to get there very fast. Um, you know, um, it, it, you, need to, you need to be able to, to create your own blue sky, your own blue ocean. Um, even if it's in a competitive sector, there has to be something different about what you're doing that other people aren't doing. And sometimes that's rather scary because if many people aren't doing it, then of course you think, well, you know, that's not a very good idea. Yeah. But ch chances are that, um, you know, if that idea keeps bothering you and keeps coming back over and over, you ought to pursue it. Uh, so I would just say go the route less traveled and, 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 and look to create something slightly different that already exists. Okay. And um, I've seen your bookshelf. You read a lot, obviously, online as well. Um, what do you recommend for people to read and um, study and learn and consume that you think could be helpful in your journey? Well, the book, one, of the, one of the first books that I ever read that I've read over and over and over again, um, maybe not so much these days, but in the early days, was a book by Napoleon Hill called Think and Grow Rich. Uh -huh. uh, I, I think that's a, a must book for, for absolutely everybody to read. Um, the other book is Thinking Big, 
um, by Brian Schwartz, yeah. I think is the author. Yeah, um, The Magic of Thinking Big, something like that. That's, 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 those are the two, the two books that I used to go and read again and again and again mm. for inspiration. Mm. Um, you know, other than that, then you build your own library. But I have a, I have a library full of books here. Um, but those are the two that jump out at me um, as, as fundamental reads. Oh, okay. And um, were there any big personal mistakes you made in the past that you wish you could have done something differently? Yeah. Um, never leave the party early um, or never leave the par- never leave the scene of the crime. Um, so in 2008, after I'd sold everything and, and um, started to enjoy what I had done, um, I left Central and Eastern Europe and moved to London and started a new life. It took me 20 some years to build up a network of lawyers, banks, construction companies in these countries. And basically I walked away from them all. Um, and, and I should have never done that. Um, I should have gone on my expensive holiday, spent a few pounds or whatever, had fun and gone back. And, and waited for the next opportunities because my entire network was there. Coming here um, and starting all over again, well, is starting all over again. And, and that's, that's very difficult to do. So, you know, the, the one thing is I should have done more when I was there, um, and I should have never left. Okay. And through it all, you had basically your wife with you for the entirety of your journey. She was your girlfriend while you were a young trader. You guys got yeah. married. So what I, I think for me, what I'd like to hear from you is um, if you could share some wisdom about picking the right life partner that would join you on your life adventure. Because I think one of the biggest things I took out was when she gave you a book that you read that helped you get out of debt and uh, kind of straighten yeah. your life before you now took off to Europe. So what, what's some wisdom on picking the right life partner to join you on the big adventure called life? You know, you, you, need, you need a strong partner. Um, so, sometimes I quite don't like that very much, but um, you, need, you need someone who's going to be able to hold up the mirror to you every once in a while and say, look, you know, this is not quite right or, you know, whether, whether I agree with it or not, um, because left on my own, um, most often I could, I could probably take a lot more risk. Um, I could do maybe some crazy things, but having, having a family, having a a strong partner, um, brings you back into reality. Um, and, uh, while sometimes I necessarily don't agree with it, um, it does keep my eyes open. Uh, and um, I guess my final question would be, when, when you're gone many years from now, what do you want to what do you want your kids to remember you for, and what do you want basically the world to remember you for? What's your legacy? What do you want your legacy to be? For building stuff. 
for 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 helping people build stuff, for helping people improve their situation. I think the the, the, the greatest pleasure I ever that got was one day I was standing on the corner of a of a, an area of shopping centers that I had built, and uh, there were four of them, four corners, four shopping centers that I had built, and you know five years earlier those were just potato fields and you know and i was standing there and i was looking at these thousands and thousands of cars and customers going in and out of these buildings and traffic and and i thought you know what that you know that that's something special um you know i've 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 taken something that was nothing and and i've created something else and i've created jobs um, I've provided a tax base for the local government. Um, people are earning money from from what I've done. They're feeding their families. They're you know so it's it's an ecosystem basically that you create and 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 that's what I take great pleasure from. Oh, great. Well, with that said, it's been a pleasure having you for the last one hour telling us a little bit about yourself, your background, and, of course, the new book, Why Sell Tackles in Africa, comes out in a few weeks. I have my copy. I'm going to get some from my friends to read. I ask you guys that after you read, after you've listened to the interview, you need to pick up the book and actually get the details of the whole story because we just covered, like, just a taste just so that you understand that, man, um, there are really some incredible adventures you can have if you put yourself out there. So, Paul, thanks for coming on the show. I appreciate you for taking the time. And I look forward to meeting you when you come over to Lagos. Well, thank thank you so much for having me. And uh, I look forward to meeting you in the next couple of weeks. And go to my site, www.pauloberschneider.com. And, um, and you'll be able to get the information from there. And thanks so much again for asking me on the show. All right. It's a pleasure. Don't let another minute go by without taking action to change your life. Visit Ordeshi.com right now for more incredible resources. And we'll see you next time on Ordeshi, the Bulletproof Entrepreneur.